Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that never wears pants. I'm serious. If you see me in pants, it probably means I'm having a really weird day. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 163. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about gender and sizing in the fashion industry. And we'll get that conversation started with a little primer on gender and pronouns. None of these are easy topics to unpack, but fortunately, this week, I'm joined by two incredible guests who are up for the task and bring a lot of expertise and valuable information to the table. First is Clothes Horse All-Star. You all know her, Maggie Green, the Halloween queen. I know you're all going to be super excited to have her back on the pod. I mean, I know that I am. And my other guest is actually a friend of Maggie's, Ruby Gertz. Ruby is a self-proclaimed size chart geek and size-inclusive design advocate. She also sells sewing patterns created by her. You can find them at spokesandstitches.com. And she is currently costuming puppets, among many other things that she's doing right now. I'm really excited to be taking on the topic of gender and fashion with Maggie and Ruby. What a duo. This episode is long. I'm just going to warn you of that. And it probably should have been split into two episodes, but guess what? I'm going on vacation next week and then taking some time off, so you get this supersized episode to tide you over until I'm back. Because this episode is so long and so comprehensive, I won't be doing the usual long introduction, but I will say this. Conversations about gender and pronouns can be intimidating for many of us. You don't want to get things wrong. And the fear of accidentally hurting someone by using the wrong term or pronoun can be very paralyzing. I think that's why so many people just try to avoid these conversations altogether. Not because they don't care, but because they worry they can't get it right. It took me a long time to feel okay publicly saying that I'm non-binary for a lot of reasons. I'll share some of them in my conversation with Ruby and Maggie. But I also felt afraid that people wouldn't take me seriously. I mean, I love white eyeliner and fluffy dresses and pink is one of my favorite colors. So a lot of people don't take me seriously very often. I worried on top of that, that I would use the wrong terminology or acronyms to explain myself. And then not only would I ruin my chances of being taken seriously, but I might cause harm to the larger movement towards reshaping gender in this world. NBD, just some major responsibility right there, right? The fear of using the wrong words, of accidentally putting our feet in our mouths, I, I get it. Most of us haven't received formal education around gender, and language and gender is constantly evolving. It's very intimidating. That's why we're going to get this conversation about gender and fashion started with a little primer on gender and pronouns, et cetera. And we started something here that I'm going to be doing regularly now on the podcast, which is asking guests to share their pronouns right out of the gate. I want to do that not just to ensure that we get everybody's pronouns right, but to normalize people just sharing your pronouns. It's not a big deal. It's not virtue signaling to share your pronouns. 
It just ensures that everybody gets them right. And it makes it normal for us to ask people their pronouns or offer our pronouns instead of it being like, oh, oh, is this like an issue with this person? No, it's just totally normal. So you'll hear that going forward on Close Horse as well. Okay, we've got a lot to do, so let's jump right in. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind everybody of of my pronouns. You know, I'm Amanda, and I'm the host here at Close Horse, and my pronouns are she, they, and I'm a non-binary person. If that is something that you're like, what the heck is that? Don't worry, we're going to talk about that a lot today. Listen, we have two guests today. One is someone you know and love very well, and then another is someone you've never met before, but you're also going to know and love very much after this. So first, why don't we get started with Maggie? You know, an all-star around here, someone you all know, a very familiar voice. Maggie, do you want to remind everyone of who you are? Absolutely. Yes. Hello, everyone. Maggie Green here. My pronouns are she, her, and I am technically cisgender, uh, a pansexual woman. I run Maggie Green Style, so my job is chief everything officer. I do all the things (laughs) for my my tiny ethical micro business that is on a mission to transform how you see yourself. So I work in personal brand and style. Thank you, Maggie. And then I said, we have a second guest, someone you're going to love so much. Ruby, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Thanks, Amanda. Um, Hi, my name is Ruby Gertz. Uh, My pronouns are she, her. And I am a professional sewist, pattern maker, and educator based in Philadelphia. Um, in terms of my gender identity, I would say I'm kind of in a space of like ever evolving. Um, <laughs> I was sort of playing around with agender for a while and uh, we're, we're kind of just figuring it out. I tend to hold my gender cards pretty close to my chest. Um, but for now, I'm using she, her pronouns. And today is pretty exciting because I just realized as the two of you were introducing yourself that through the miracle of technology, we are kind of providing a coast-to-coast experience for the United States because we've got (laughs) Philadelphia, me in the middle in Austin, Texas, and then Maggie up in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle. Like, we've got three time zones, three segments of the United States. This is pretty exciting. This is the most nationwide episode we've ever had. (laughs) That's momentous. Momentous, right? (laughs) Thank you, technology, I guess. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about Gender, gender and fashion, uh, the intersection between gender, fashion and sizing. Ruby is, I mean, you know, I don't think this is overstating it to say Ruby is an expert in sizing and the history of that. (laughs) I can't wait for you all to learn from her. But we're going to get started because it turns out Ruby is like the quadruple threat. Ruby can sew. Ruby can design. Ruby is an expert in the history of fit and knows a lot about gender and sexuality. So... Ruby, why don't you kind of get us started with a little primer around gender? I would not describe myself as an expert. Uh, (laughs) I'm just someone who likes to read a lot and has done a lot of research. Um, And while I do have a master's degree in gender and sexuality, it's really, really important um, for me to stress that everyone is an expert on their own experience, their own body, and their own identity. Mm -hmm. And I don't claim to know more about anyone else than they know about themselves. Um, So I can explain these concepts kind of generally, um, but everybody is the expert on themselves and their own identity. Um, So 
I felt like that was an important point to clarify. I also wanted to provide a little bit more clarification on this concept of sex versus gender. Um, Something that I think is really important to mention is the term sex assigned at birth. So most times when a baby is born, we look at the baby and we decide male or female based on the observation of genitalia. And we don't always get that right. Sometimes there are ambiguities there. So there is kind of a somewhat high prevalence of intersex characteristics in about 1%, maybe even more of the population uh, because of hormonal and chromosomal differences that are not outwardly apparent, right? So even if somebody has what we might consider to be like easy to categorize genitalia, um, (laughs) there may be things happening internally in that infant's body um, that we just don't know and we just can't observe at birth. Um, And sometimes people are also born with um, ambiguous genitalia as well, Um, which is kind of a whole different thing. Um, A lot of those folks do identify as intersex. um, And a lot of times, at least historically, what would happen um, is that when a baby was born with ambiguous looking genitalia, the doctors would usually advise the parents um, to have that child undergo surgery at a very young age so that they would fit more neatly into a binary gender Mm -hmm. category. Um, And oftentimes this was not um, told to the parents as like, hey, you know, you've given birth to an intersex child. It was like, hey, you've given birth to a girl, but there's (sighs) just like an abnormality in her genitalia and we're going to like surgically correct that so that she can like be a quote unquote normal girl, um, which is really, really harmful. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those people um, later in life, you know, have sort of found out that they non-consensually were given surgery at a very young Mm -hmm. age. um, And it can cause a lot, a lot of stress and trauma later on um, when folks are finding out that information. Um, So sex defined at birth is that initial observation that's made. Um, And sex assigned at birth is what gives you that F or that M that gets put on all of your legal documents and your records going forward from there. So anytime you have to fill out a form and you check M or F, um, you know, that's sex assigned at birth for the most part. Um, So not only is it possible to get sex assigned at birth wrong? Sometimes people just don't always feel that the sex assigned at birth is in alignment with their true identity. So that's where this concept of gender comes into play. So gender isn't just the roles that we're assigned to play in society based off of those characteristics of sex assigned at birth, um, but we also need to talk about gender identity and gender expression. So gender identity is how somebody feels internally So what you personally feel your gender is, uh, which may or may not align with your sex assigned at birth. Generally, if it does align, you would be considered cisgender. Uh, That's a (laughs) C-I-S, which means that your gender identity is aligned with your sex assigned at birth. Um, And gender expression is how you express your gender to the world. So that's the part that's more observable to to the outside world, to passerby, um, you know, to people in your community, as you're walking down the street, um, you know, someone might look at you and say, like, that's a man, that's a woman. And we're sort of trained in our society to, like, categorize people that way. Um, So I would say that it's sort of like a very comfortable place to just, like, put people in gender binary boxes. And typically, when somebody does not fit squarely into one of those boxes, um, 
you know, I think the the typical reaction, if it's not something that we've thought critically about, um, is to feel sort of uncomfortable mm-hmm. around that person or to just be like, hmm, you know, like, I can't, I can't squarely put this person into one of these boxes. So I'm not sure kind of like what to do with that information. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit more. Uh, but it's also important to note that you can't tell what somebody's gender or what somebody's sex is just from looking at them. So you might look at someone and think, oh, hey, that person looks really feminine. They must be a woman. Um, and that's not necessarily true because you don't know what that person's gender identity is. You don't know how they feel inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also don't know what's happen- happening biologically in that person's body. So really the best practice is to train yourself to recognize and accept that you can't just know from looking at someone what their gender is or what their sex is. Um, So believe somebody when they do choose to disclose to you and tell you who they are and how they identify and just try to operate from a place where knowing that it's safest to just not make assumptions Mm -hmm. about anyone Mm -hmm. uh, and use the language people use to describe themselves. So if someone introduces themselves to you and they say like, I'm a trans woman, you're like, okay, this, this person is a trans woman. It would be inappropriate or rude of you to then, you know, be like, oh, that's somebody who, you know, is a man dressed as a woman or that's somebody whose identity, um, you know, I don't know, to use, to use a word different, right? Oh, that person's genderqueer. They didn't introduce themselves as genderqueer, so you probably shouldn't use that term to describe them. Um, so sex assigned at birth, you might also see abbreviated as the acronyms AFAB and AMAB, that's A-F-A-B and A-M-A-B. So that's a shorthand way of referencing sex assigned at birth as like assigned female at birth, assigned male at birth. Um, So if sex assigned at birth aligns with your gender identity, again, that makes you cisgender. But if your identity doesn't align, then you might identify as trans, non-binary, genderqueer, gender non-conforming. There's a lot of terms, and those terms are also always changing and evolving. So again, it's best to use the language that people use to describe themselves. Um, Also, if somebody describes themselves as AFAB or AMAB, you can definitely use that terminology. Um, You know, if if that is something that they said to you that they identify as, um, but it's also not so cool to use that language to talk about people when you don't necessarily know that information or it's not how they've introduced themselves to you. Um, So even though these terms are a bit newer, uh, the idea that there are people who exist outside of the gender binary is not a new concept. There have always been people who didn't fit squarely into one of those two gender boxes throughout history. Uh, So if you do some research on trans history and gender nonconforming histories, there's a lot of people, sometimes even famous people or people who were influential or notorious in their societies (laughs) um, who were not necessarily like fitting into the male or female, man or woman gender categories. And oftentimes societies had other ways of talking about those people. Um, maybe they had third or fourth or other gender categories um, in their societies. And so currently the way that a lot of folks whose gender identity doesn't match their sex assigned at birth express their identity is through using gender neutral pronouns. So typically we use he, him, and she, her to refer to cisgender people in the third person. And more and more people are starting to use singular they, them, uh, or sometimes other pronouns like zzer as a way to opt out of those gender binary categories. 
And so for people who think that this is hard, right, I think there's this narrative that like pronouns are hard. Like I've, I've been trained to refer to people in this very specific way my whole life. And it's hard for me to like understand how to do that differently or break that habit. Um, it is really important to practice. Yes. And it's also important to note that we do have a frame of reference for people shifting their identities in our society. In fact, it actually happens a lot where people get married and maybe they change their surname, right? Especially cisgender women marrying men oftentimes will adopt the man's last name. Um, or, for example, maybe you're growing older and you decide to give up a childhood nickname. So maybe you've been going by Charlie your whole life and then you get to college and you say, actually, I want people to call me Charles, right? Um and generally, it's kind of accepted that it's rude or inappropriate to keep using that person's old name after they've told you they're changing it, right? So if somebody changes their name because of marriage, or they tell you that they don't want to go by their childhood nickname anymore, and you keep calling them that name, and you're just like, oh, sorry, oh, I forgot, oh, you know, that's like something that we're all going to kind of like, <laughs> you know, roll our eyes at you behind your back, because it's just rude, right? We just kind of know that that's like not nice to do that, right? It's like not respectful. Um and in fact, we often celebrate this transition when it happens within a cisgender context. Again, like think of like a woman getting married and changing her last name, right? Like we get so excited over that shit, right? We're like, Mr. and Mrs. Williams or whatever, right? Like we can't wait. We're like putting that name on everything. It's something to celebrate. Um, so, you know, I think it's really important that we show the same support to our transgender, non-conforming, non-binary and otherwise not cisgender friends and community members when they tell us who they really are. So I've definitely had friends over the years who have come out about their pronouns. And at first, you know, the thing that's most important to me is that I want them to know that I recognize and respect and care about the statement they're making via their gender and their pronouns. And so I don't want to use the wrong ones. And, you know, for friends that I've had, 10, 20 years or longer, I have been like my brain filed away a long time ago that their pronouns are this. And it, it's a mistake that would be really easy to make. So what I do is I will literally go around the house and I will like talk to the cats about that person using the correct pronouns all morning long while I'm doing other things. Or I might yep. write mm, a little paragraph yeah. about a story that I, you know, something experience I had with that person using the right pronouns and i swear it's just like and i say this as a person who's been jamming japanese into my head for like four years now that repetition and writing and thinking about it and putting that effort into it makes it more natural like you just mm -hmm. won't it's less likely that you're going to make the mistake and it's worth that effort when you care about and you love someone and want the best for them yeah it's a little bit of an exercise and retraining yeah right? that's why we practice it's it's building new muscle memory yeah. especially for contexts where we like you were mentioning amanda you have people that you care about maybe their pronouns change or their gender identity evolves over time Wh whatever it is in that moment like listen to it honor it respect it and put that extra time in like yeah that's one way to to show that you care and they may never even know that you've done that behind the scenes, right? It's, it's not about that. But building that, building that vocabulary, building that muscle memory is super mm -hmm. important. I also hear a lot of cisgender folks in particular, heterosexual folks in particular, they're like, they don't quite understand 
because maybe they don't have a, a different kind of pronoun, right? Cis, cisgender folks are like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm used to this. This is the way it is. I don't understand the importance of, say, like adding my pronouns to my Zoom profile or my email signature or like the LinkedIn bio is a really huge thing. And in fact, mm -hmm. when it comes to LinkedIn, especially if you are someone who considers himself an advocate or you yourself are trans, that's an easy visual cue of like being able to tell who's who, who gets it, who doesn't get it, who respects it. And they're like, why, why should we do this? It's not so much about sharing your own identity. It is, it's a social cue and a signal to those who might have different pronouns that you're a safe person to share those with. Like you do understand, you see them, you're, you know, you're, you're with it. Right. Um, I just, I wanted to point that out. Like, even if you are cisgender, I would say maybe even, especially if you're cisgender mm -hmm. and you care about people, this is one way that you can communicate that and embrace this whole concept of respecting pronouns is put yours out there that will make others feel more safe and comfortable to share their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. Just like normalize caring about pronouns yeah. and how we do that is by not making people who do share their pronouns feel weird about it by just everyone doing it, you know? So I, I really appreciate that. So I know, Maggie, you've, I, you know, I'm going to say I was really touched by this. You really went to bat and dealt with someone who's being really trolly about pronouns regarding me. How long ago was that at this point? I have no concept of time. So like oh. three months ago, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Probably three months ago, uh, maybe over three months. Here's, here's the thing. And th this is, this kind of goes along with making sure that your pronouns are visible in like your email signature, your Zoom profile. I have a personal policy, but also through my business. So it's a professional policy to see so say something if I see something. And that includes any situations where like I don't go looking for these things to happen. I don't have time for that or frankly, the emotional bandwidth that would be a task, an undertaking that would probably make me miserable. But if I see it, I'm going to say something. If someone misgenders someone, and that's what happened in this case, it was, I think it was on an Instagram post on Clothes Horse, and I <laughs> happened to notice yeah. this person misgendered you, not specifically using the wrong pronouns, but using a word and a phrase that I, I knew was offensive to you. Yeah. And I... I said gentle correction. Those are the terms that I always use. Gentle correction as a reminder. The host is non-binary and they use she, they pronouns. This is, you know, and they immediately jumped into my DMs to make it all about them. So this, this, why I'm sharing uh, this is a little bit of like, this is what not to do. Yeah. Okay? yeah. And maybe, maybe we can ask Ruby like, okay, how, how do we handle mm. this in a positive <laughs> and respectful way? This is what's, what not to do. You don't make it about you. This person absolutely did. They were flabbergasted that I said anything in a public forum. And they got super defensive. And it was message after message of like rationalizing and justifying. For example, I said I was born in 1981. I'm old. I don't get it. I don't understand this. This one? The, <laughs> that person is younger hell? than me, by the way. I mean, barely. We would have been in school the same time. But if I can get it, 
I mean, honestly, age has nothing to do with understanding people and respecting who they are, you know? That's right. If people's grandparents, and they do, if they're great grandparents, <sighs> exactly. can take that step and make an effort, anyone and everyone can. Age is never an excuse. No. Frankly, there there is no excuse. And that's, that's why we're having this conversation today, because we're all learning. We're all going to make mistakes, right? And also language changes over time. So nobody's going to get it right 100% of the time. But if we make the commitment, this is what I explained to this person, the commitment to learning and just being receptive to challenging yourself and educating yourself, listening when someone says this, the best thing you can do is say thank you, right, and move on. Um, that's not what happened in this case. It got pretty ugly. Um, and we eventually blocked each other. And that was kind of the end of that. But uh, yeah, I will always do that. Anyone who's listening, Ruby, yeah. Amanda, all of you, if I see it, I'm going to say something. I feel like that's <laughs> as someone who has some amount of privilege, I feel like it's my responsibility. Like I, I can do this. People, people will listen. Maybe they, maybe they won't listen, but I have to say something. It's the right thing to do. Well, I appreciate that. And there will there will be someone who you really open their eyes, honestly, yeah. you know, and maybe that's only going to be 20% of people. Maybe that's going to be 90% of people. But regardless of how, quote, successful it is, the person who was misgendered or mislabeled or whatever is always going to feel so appreciative and just feel cared for. And I think that that's the most important part of it all. So how... <laughs> Does anybody have any advice here on how you could react in that situation if you misgendered someone, for example, and someone called you out on it? That called out sounds aggressive. Someone gently corrected you. Call in. Call in. There you That's go. That's right. Like, yeah. I, you know, because I think I understand. I honestly had a, a recent situation with a vendor at work who used a term on some packaging that is a pejorative racist term for the Romani people. And I said, you know, like, listen, we, there's no way we would carry that just because of this. Like, if you want to change it, here's a bunch of information about it and why this is important to us. And at first, they were just like really defensive. Like, well, no one else cares. And I'm like, well, actually, let me show you about a huge re global renaming of a type of moth because of this, like, this is a really big deal. And I sent them even more information and was like really gentle with them. And then they were like, you know, thank you mm -hmm. so much. At first I was a little taken aback because I felt bad or embarrassed, but I'm glad, you know, thank you for being patient with me. Um, and I'm not saying that we all need to be doing all that emotional labor all the time for everyone. But to me, that ended up being like a better response. Although I wish it didn't take like 45 minutes of me pulling links to get yeah. them there. <laughs> What would it be a better way to respond what? to if Maggie says to you on Instagram, hey, uh, you just misgendered that person? Yeah, I mean, I think the best way to respond is to apologize quickly and just move on. <laughs> I think so, um, too, so think, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like the longer you sit on it, it feels weird. <sighs> like if you let's say like I misgendered a coworker or something and they were like, you know, someone told me later, oh, that person uses they them pronouns even in that situation where maybe that person has like walked away and like that, that interaction is over or something. It's like, I, I think, you know, if you're given that information, Oh, that person uses they, them pronouns, you just say, Oh, thanks for letting me know. 
And then you don't even need to say anything to that person, you know, and just get it right the next time. Because I think when you go up to someone, you're like, oh, my God, I didn't realize. I'm so sorry. Like, oh, like I misgendered you. Like it, it kind of makes it all about you and your guilt and you're kind of centering like your own discomfort with the situation and almost like putting them in a position where they need to then sort of yeah. follow this script that says like, oh, it's OK. Don't worry about it. Um and that feels really awkward and, and bad <laughs> for the for that person because like they they weren't trying to have an interaction that was like all about that. Um, so I think you know if it's if it's to somebody's face or the person you know the person is present in the room, I think you just say, "Oops, sorry," and then you know make an effort to get it right from then on. Um, and if somebody is you know calling you in like um, you know like Maggie did in that comment, it's like you can just say like, "Oh, thanks for the info. I'm gonna I'm gonna delete that previous comment." Yeah, and then you just do it, and then you're done, <laughs> and then it's, you walk away. <laughs> it's that simple, and then it's not yeah. like I feel like with the situation where it went awry with Maggie, it turned into minimally one hour of really bad feelings on both sides, uh, and we yeah. don't need that because there's like enough stuff to be upset about in the world, honestly. Like totally. without that, you know. Yeah. And it takes, I think it takes a lot of emotional labor to, to, you know, especially if you are the person being misgendered to stand up for yourself in mm-hmm. that moment. Yeah. Um, and so it really, if you, if you're the person who has, you know, done the misgendering, what, even if it's like by accident, like just don't, don't dig yourself and that other person into this trench where you now need to talk about it forever, you know, just, just apologize and, and move on. Yeah. And I will just say as someone who, I would say I waited almost 10 years to tell everyone that I was non-binary, even though I've known it this whole time and have been like thinking about it. And it was sort of just like, for me, I thought, well, it'll be too difficult for everybody else around me to understand. Uh, So I just won't say anything to anyone ever, but I'll just know it. I think for me, it felt really liberating freeing like I was being honest about something that I'd been secretive about for so long to just tell people but then at the same time and I was telling both of you before we started recording that you know I get misgendered constantly at work um like if I get one more email from a vendor or even like someone who works for my employer that says hey lady or ladies let's set up some time to talk I just am gonna like flip over a desk I'm not gonna do that they're like attached to the wall there there's no way but (laughs) but like you know it's like one of those things where I feel like sometimes oh man if I just never told anyone publicly like this is something I you know that is is me and something I've been thinking about for a long time then I would never have to deal with the disappointing feeling of people not respecting it if that makes sense yeah so I just I guess what I'm saying in like a really roundabout way is that one of the things I think it's important for everybody who's listening to this conversation to understand is that no one is coming out and saying, hey, I'm non-binary or I, my pronouns, you, you, I know you think my pronouns are she, her, there, but they're actually he, him or they're they, them. Nobody's coming out and saying that on a whim. It took mm-hmm. me 10 years to say something out loud about it, you yeah. know? And I think like that's why by the time you know someone's pronouns, like it's it's long overdue to respect them. Definitely. And it's important. It's like extra more important than you think it is. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Amanda. Uh, yeah, thank you, thank you for listening to that. Yeah. I just I think like, you know, when you were talking about like how you hold your gender cards close to you, I was like, wow, this mm-hmm. is a feeling I know really, really well. 
<laughs> so yeah, yeah, it can be really scary to yeah, you know to yeah. say say anything out loud if you don't feel a hundred million percent certain about it. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think trusting trusting people when they tell you who they are is is really important. Yeah, it's really really important. Let's take a minute to talk about two small businesses who are supporting this week's episode of Clothes Horse. You know who seems to constantly need new clothes? Kids. They outgrow everything so fast that it's hard to keep up. Many of us already dress our kids in secondhand clothing because it just makes sense, both financially and from a sustainability perspective. But still, There are plenty of people out there who think that secondhand kids' clothes are stained, covered with pills, smell like they just came out of a basement, or were passed on from someone who has very different taste than you. Nyla started Canopy Kids to change that misconception that secondhand kids' clothes are usually gross because they're not. Canopy Kids offers a well-curated assortment of high-quality kids' clothing for newborns to tweens, along with maternity and nursing clothing. And even better, it's all secondhand, with thousands of styles to choose from. One of my favorite things about Canopy Kids is that the clothing is completely ungendered, just grouped by age and size. I love that. I'm always being asked for suggestions for more sustainable kids' clothing, and you can't get more sustainable than secondhand from Canopy Kids. Go see for yourself at canopykidsworld.com, and Nyla has a special offer for the clothes horse community. Get 15% off your first order with promo code CLOTHESHORSE. And don't worry, I'll share the promo code, the links, all that stuff in the show notes. You can also find Canopy Kids on Instagram as at canopykids.shop, where you'll get to see some of the great secondhand children's clothes Canopy Kids has to offer. Check out the Google for vintage and secondhand, the Gem app. Gem brings all vintage and secondhand listings into one search and helps you to find the items you're looking for. I use it all the time. It is so much easier to find what I want. It saves me so much time. And Gem shows listings from big platforms like Etsy, eBay, Poshmark, and from hundreds of independent online stores as well. What a time saver knowing that... (laughs) There's secondhand clothing all over the internet, and I can find it in one place. GemApp is available worldwide as a website and in the App Store and Google Play. You can show your support for Clothes Horse by using the link in the show notes to learn more about Gem. So please do that. If you're not using the Gem app already, you are really missing out. If you are interested in advertising your small business on Clothes Horse, you can learn more at clotheshorsepodcast.com. I think there's also like this false narrative that's circulating that trans and non-binary and other non-cis genders are kind of this like new and modern phenomenon, um, especially here in Western culture. Um, But the fact is that there were a lot of non-white, non-European indigenous cultures that did have multiple gender designations. Um, So more than two gender designations for people in their communities. Um, And kind of during this time of colonization and globalization, a lot of white Europeans would arrive in these 
places that they had never been before. And rather trying to rather than trying to understand um, these different perspectives and structures and ways of like understanding people's identities, they judged, they persecuted and disappeared indigenous people who had different gender presentations than the binary genders that these white Europeans were used to. Um, so it's really horrible and devastating. Um, and there's a lot of intergenerational trauma around these topics for a lot of people, especially those in marginalized communities, um, because for a long time, it was very dangerous to not align with one of these two gender designations. A lot of the narratives that we're seeing now, um, you know, about this being like a new thing is actually like lacks an understanding of the history of, of colonialism and, and frankly, like white supremacy that, that forced these other genders to kind of disappear or remain unseen for a while. Yeah, I was listening to a completely different topic as I was driving home to talk to both of you. And it was actually a podcast about the cartoon Kathy. <laughs> so totally different. <laughs> they were talking, you know, like it was a deep dive into sort of like a lot of the uh, diet culture of Kathy. And so it started with mm. like a history of, you know, what has what has been ap considered appealing or you know, acceptable in terms of specifically women's bodies, right? And mm -hmm. so much of diet culture begins with colonialism as well. It's just like, mm -hmm. oh my God, it's just the gift that keeps giving, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Giving misery. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And a lot, yeah, a lot of beauty standards. Um, we can talk more about this when we dive into this, the sizing stuff, but a lot of like beauty standards are built around this sort of white European ideal. Mm -hmm. Um, not to even say that like most white European people have that body type, but it was just like the prevalent beauty standard in that community, yeah. um, or like in that group of people. Um, and it was specifically like designed to exclude, um, you know, people of color and people who, um, you know, they were trying to point out as being inferior during, mm -hmm. during these times where there were like these very, yeah, racist and eugenicist attitudes. So, I mean, I think mm -hmm. a lot of people really struggle with understanding why it is important to come out and be clear with people about who your gender identity and at the same time why others might be afraid to do that. Why is it really important to respect what people, what people tell you their gender is? rather than just being like, whatever, I, I can tell by looking at you what you are in my mind, but actually like respecting people's statements around that. I think it goes back to what you said and, and what Maggie said before about it being about care. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, about being like, yeah, about showing care for your, for your fellow humans. So even if it's not something that you understand, I mean, I think we all can understand this concept of like tolerance, right? Like I might not be the same religion as somebody else, but if they tell me that they're a certain religion, I'm not going to be like, ha, that's not real. Like, <laughs> right, you just say, okay, right, yeah. you know, you just say, okay, that's, that's a part of who you are and you, you accept mm -hmm. that and you move on. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah. And I think that's it also like, it doesn't, I think there is this also very like false and harmful narrative that like these, gender identities outside of the binary are somehow like dangerous Ugh. or threatening to folks and it's not <laughs> like, yeah. it's you know it really has nothing to do with with you at all so if it's something that you know 
makes you uncomfortable or you don't understand it's like just accept that it exists and and move on with your life like it's not nobody's coming for you or like trying to harm you in any way like someone is just expressing their identity it makes me think of empathy as well like you don't you don't necessarily have to have shared that lived experience, right? Or share that history or that narrative, mm-hmm. whatever it is, to have empathy for someone. Just acknowledging and, like you said, accepting that it is, it's their truth, right? Is huge. It's empowering for them. It's empowering for the human race at large who might also be, you know, um, navigating these challenges and trying to figure out who they are and like what their place is in the world Mm -hmm. you know um who who their people are saying these things also respecting these things is it's a way of belonging it's a way to to figure out the answers to those questions and if you create that space and hold it for others you're helping everyone else along the way too. Absolutely and I think if it's hard for you to understand even after everything we've just talked about I want you to think about a time in your life where you felt as if you were trapped in a role that wasn't who you are, that didn't match who you are inside, right? And that can have nothing to do with gender. It can have to be a relationship you were in, a job you had, the way people in a certain situation treated you. Imagine feeling like that every single day of your life. If that's not enough to like convert you or not convert you, but make you realize how important this is, I, I don't I don't know what else will. So you know, yeah. fashion uh, is is definitely just clothing in general and the way it is created and sold in the world today and for a very, very long time is highly gendered, right? You know it's either it's men's clothing or it's women's clothing. It's boys or it's girls. It's just like toys in a weird way, even though we know all people can play with all kinds of toys, right? With clothing, it gets a little bit more complicated because one, we are talking about a wide breadth of bodies that are trying to be fit, but we're also like, we cannot, we cannot emphasize enough how much stock our society as a whole puts into genderizing clothing. Um, and, you know, it, it's it, it's just interesting to see even some of the people I feel that have some of the most progressive views around gender will still kind of get a little muddled there in pants versus dresses kind of thing, right? Because this is just something that has been drilled into us since we were born. It was drilled into our parents' house heads since they were born and their parents' heads. And it's, you know, it goes even beyond pink for girls and blue for boys and yellow for if you didn't ask the gender at the sonogram, right? Um, so, you know, in my experience personally as a buyer, I saw a lot of differences in the way clothes were sold to men versus women. And I'm using this all in quotes, of course. But for men, when I would go to men's market, because I worked for a retailer for a while that was, and we're going to touch on this more later, that was ostensibly trying to sell unisex clothing to women, to cis women. But really what they were selling is menswear aesthetic, Right traditional menswear aesthetic. And so I went to men's market after going to market. And by this, I mean, when I say market, I mean trade shows. After going to trade shows for years that focused on women's, because even the trade shows where you go to look at the dang clothes are gendered too. (laughs) And so 
even like the entire experience of it is completely different. Like you go to the women's show and almost everybody you work with there is a woman, right? And it's really, really trend focused. It's about basically like selling people's specifically women as many clothes as possible as often as possible there's not a lot of focus on quality or longevity or heritage of a brand or anything like that and it's very like dance music people trying to give you like skinny vodka margaritas at the booth there's a lot of diet culture thrown (laughs) in you go to men's market Mm -hmm. and first off like there's like a dj and there's like artisanal cocktails being passed around and fancy coffee and it's primarily male sales reps that you're dealing with and it's more about like clothes that you wear for a lifetime and brands that have been around for a long time and there's a real focus on quality 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 you never hear people talk about quality at women's market let me tell you it's just about like hot (laughs) trendy new fun that's what you hear there and Having worked in the women's realm for so long and then starting to go to these men's shows, I was like, oh, my God, I'm like, just make me even more mad at the fashion industry. Right. (laughs) Just that, like, the idea is like women should be sold new clothes constantly. They should be so focused on being sexy and trendy and new and hot colors of the year and all this stuff. And then you go to men's market and it's like, yeah, here are the same jeans we sold last year. You know, it's a flannel shirt again. No, I mean, you know, just maybe like they need a new one. It's not because like this is the hot flannel shirt of the year or this is the trendy color. Like there's none of that there. And no one certainly is ever going to offer you one of those horrible skinny girl vodka cocktails. (laughs) So (laughs) So what what kind of stories and like schemas, I think is the word you used, Ruby, like what does this reinforce as people are listening? What does this tell us? Like, I mean, my my face is contorted right now. Like, I hope it doesn't freeze this way for life. I'm just like, <gasps> I never knew, right? Because I've not been that on that side of the industry. It's I'm ridiculous. Just, what the hell? You know, and I'll tell you, like, in the buying realm, even as a buyer, regardless of your gender, you are going to be put into a a very gendered department and you will be pigeonholed there forever. So if you started your career buying women's clothing, guess what? That's what you're doing forever. And everybody will assume that there is no possible way that you could pick out clothing for men. How could you do that? It's so different, right? And conversely, the other way around, I remember specifically interviewing for a job uh, to be a men's buyer uh, for shoes. And I blew them away with my project. They wanted to hire me But the owner of the company said, how could a woman pick out men's shoes? How could a woman pick out men's shoes? Imagine that. I have so many, so many thoughts. (laughs) And I didn't get the job because of that. They told me up front, which I think is maybe a little bit illegal. That's a whole other thing. But they were like, we just don't think a woman can pick out men's shoes. Yeah. Yeah, and this was like a really cool company, by the way. I'm not going to name them. They went out of business, but probably because they didn't hire me to be the men's buyer. Because they didn't hire you. They missed that chance. But I mean, like this, this is how that works. And there was another time a few years later where I, interestingly enough, wait, I'm seeing a trend here. I was a candidate to be a men's buyer for another company that went out of business. (laughs) 
they're gone now. So maybe once again, maybe dodged a bullet there. And it was a similar thing. Like they really loved my project. They really felt like I had a good understanding of the customer. I had a really like good eye for the product mix. Obviously, like understood all the math and like, you know, critical thinking of buying. But it was just like a, they were stuck with this idea of like, how could you pick out men's clothing? What? what? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think I think the fashion industry, I mean, the fashion industry has operated on, like, relying on the bi- gender binary, like, pretty much since, like, the birth of ready-to-wear, like, during the Industrial Revolution. Um, and I think, you know, I think there's, like, a lot of reasons for it. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of, like, what schema is, what Maggie's question before of, like, what schemas are these, are these you know, sort of separate spheres um, reinforcing. I mean, I, I experienced this in fashion school too. Like if you go to do like pretty much any undergraduate fashion program in the country, like the the default is like women's mm-hmm. wear. So like if you're just going to study fashion design, it's assumed that you're going to design women's wear. And then men's wear is usually like an elective class or like an alternate uh-huh. course that you can take. Um, or maybe, you know, maybe if you go somewhere that has like, a lot of specific programs like FIT, you know, you can major in menswear. Um, but I feel like the default often is like starting with women's wear and then menswear is sort of seen as the thing that you like opt mm-hmm. into um, as sort of like an offshoot. Um, so yeah, I mean, do you want me to get into the, like the industrial revolution history? Of it? Yeah. Let's talk about it because I mean, it is like, but, like if you yeah. think that, I don't know, people that you encounter on the internet are really out of touch when it comes to gender. Man, let me, the fashion industry would like to have a moment with you because it is like <laughs> old time days every day, right? No shit. Yeah. Definitely. Frozen and with the time. body sizes too, with like the idea of like what sizes human oh. bodies are too. It's like, it's like their measurement data is from a yeah, hundred yeah. years ago or something. <laughs> it was during the industrial revolution that clothing first began um, to be mass produced. Um, And the first stuff that was mass produced was like cheap workwear Mm. for laborers. So there were a lot more like factory jobs and jobs where people were like getting dirty and needing more sort of like disposable Mm -hmm. clothing. Um, And it needed to be cheap because these people were not well paid. (laughs) And so it had to be something they could afford. And so that was kind of when we first started to see this proliferation of like mass production and a lot of like mass produced ready to wear at first was menswear um, because it was for people who were mostly working Mm -hmm. class laborers. Um, And they would like order it through like mail order catalogs. Um, And then eventually we start to see it sort of gain popularity and we start to see like the rise of department stores and there's like more ready to wear being sold to especially more like middle and upper class people um but this was also kind of during like the industrial revolution um we're talking like early to like mid 1800s um and at that time there was also kind of this predominant thought that there was this very like strong division of gender roles as this mark of like mm-hmm. high society um and and essentially of you know high society being like white supremacist culture of course like they, they go great together yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and so they were saying okay well you know like 
these these people at the top, um, you know, women are relegated to the homemaking and like consumerism sphere, um, and men are doing business and finance, and they're entrepreneurs and they're philosophers and they're getting educations and stuff like that. So we start to see this like division as there's more like ready to wear goods and more just like stuff being manufactured mm-hmm. um, that women sort of become like the shoppers. Um, and so, yeah, so there's kind of this narrative that like having, having a high distinction between these like separate spheres is like the proper way to, to conduct oneself. Um, and men were really easy to sell on ready to wear because usually like it was women who were buying the clothes for their husbands and their families. So standard sizing was like a really easy system to get the right fit for men. Um, Cause a woman could just like walk into a store and be like, my husband's this size um, and buy, you know, whatever he needed. Um, and so, yeah. So there was also kind of this spirit at the time of like, bootstrapping there was this idea that like kind of anybody could make it and so like men didn't want to dress as fancy as they used to like there was kind of this like working class aesthetic interesting yeah it was like starting to kind of like weirdly sort of like trickle up which is unusual in fashion Uh um this is Mm -hmm. also like on the heels of the french revolution so it was very dangerous for rich people Uh, to look very rich at the time it was like oh it's actually like the cool thing to do to dress down um (laughs) So yeah, so even, you know, these really upper crust men, it was sort of culturally in bad taste for them to like care too much about dressing in fancy clothes. Um, So ready to wear kind of allows them to like further remove themselves from the process of consumerism because it's sort of associated with this like flamboyancy and like women's sphere of consumerism. Um, And so they're just, a lot of them are just having, you know, their wives or their servants or whoever just like buy clothing for them um so ready to wear like really takes off with menswear first um, the irony is blowing so, my mind yeah like, I, know. <laughs> I know i know because i definitely think of fashion as like for better or worse this industry that is built off of women's insecurities <laughs> that are <Yes>. created by <laughs> the industry in the first place like it's like the snake that's eating its own tail um so it's really interesting to hear that it really started with menswear yeah, but it's also like it almost is like I don't know. I feel like it's almost a warning sign of like the fast fashion because we're talking about like things being mass produced so that they can be thrown away by laborers who can't afford to buy nicer things. <sighs> yeah, right? that's like, true. Yeah, and so yeah, so women's wear was like a harder sell um, because at the time, you know, people had like really strong connections to their local seamstresses or tailors and especially, you know, upper class people who could like afford those really kind of like fancy custom things. Like it wasn't seen as like desirable to wear something that would look the same as someone else's garment. Um, Mm -hmm. Or a lot of people would sew stuff themselves because that was still like a skill that everyone had. Um, So it took like some pretty calculated marketing work to like get women to shift into ready to wear um and like accept it as like as an actual um you know option for like purchasing clothing um and so it started to also gain popularity first among working among the working class because we saw a lot more young single women moving to cities to work in factories um so they had like less time to sew their own clothes um they also didn't make that much money. A lot of them were like buying the clothes from the factories that they were actually like 
working in. <laughs> um, and then at first also like the ready to wear dresses were constructed with lots of seam allowance um, and kind of like a boxy fit. So you would mm. buy something, you would basically buy something that was like 80% completed. It was like all the hard work had been done and you just needed to like take it in or like let out a seam or like get it to like fit you perfectly. Um, but it was sort of expected that everybody had these skills. So you were purchasing, it was sort of like a convenient purchase of like, why don't you buy a dress that's like 80% done and finish it yourself. Um, and so there would be like a lot of extra room, I guess, for, for adjustments and stuff. Um, and it was kind of seen as like, not, I don't know. It was kind of seen as like cheap, right? It was sort of seen as like a working class, like thrifty convenience purchase. Um, and then it wasn't until we start to see like, yeah, like rise of department stores and stuff that we start to see like these more high end ready to wear items being manufactured. Um, and like, you know, the rise of like luxury labels and things like that. Um, but yeah, I do think it's really interesting that, um, that menswear kind of made its way to the ready to wear market first. Um, I know. I mean, in a way, it makes sense to me just thinking about my experiences going to market as well, because so many of the the men's brands, I mean, obviously, like as in women's clothing, there are many different sort of, I don't know, like aesthetic categories, right? But in general, a lot of menswear really focuses on the heritage of it all, the history mm-hmm. of the brand, the longevity of the brand. And if you think about a lot of the biggest brands in that space, like even if you just talk about Levi's, for example, right? Like the booth is plastered with photos of Levi's through history, you know? And it's all about this like story of craftsmanship, (laughs) craftsmanship that's been perfected over more than a century. You go to women's market and you walk into Levi's booth and it's like, here's all your hot festival looks right here, <laughs> you know, and it's like infuriating, right? Yeah. And I mean, listen, both of those, both of those stories are spin. They're marketing. Mm-hmm. There's, an, It's not probably true that the men's jeans are any better than the women's jeans because they're all being sewn in the same factories. But it's just the way it is sold, the way the brand presents itself. And it, it's just become so apparent when it's a brand that sells to both the men's and women's market, right? So it's 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 just so fascinating to me that like the, his, the true history of it all is like, oh, the clothes were kind of disposable. But <laughs> if you go to market and talk to one of these brands, it's like, oh, we've been, we have been since 1890, creating clothing that's meant to last a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I wonder also, like, if, you know, if those clothes from the 1890s, like, maybe were also falling apart, but people just mended them. Mm. Yeah. Because that was, like, a more available option. Um, yeah. That's that's a really yeah. good point. I <laughs> and I think, like, fashion, is, I mean, fashion has been kind of stuck for a really long time and hasn't really kept up with the way society has been changing, at least a, um, around gender specifically. Because, yeah, forget about the industry really understanding what genderless dressing means, which we'll talk about in a few. But even just, like, go to a department store and the way they're trying to sell to even just, like, the women's customer, it's like all women are grouped by age, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. So you've yeah. got the juniors department, right? 
And that is for ostensibly for like teenagers. Then you'll have like the young contemporary, which is supposed to be for, I guess, women in their 20s. Then you get the next shop that's for women in their 30s and 40s. And then you'll get like the, the next section that is for women who have who have the audacity to buy clothing over the age of 50, per- perhaps. <laughs> mature. Right? The mature right? Yeah, market. the mature area. <laughs> and then like, of course, most importantly, Yes, they've been they've been slicing and dicing around by age, but now we're also going to say, oh, but if you're over this size, you have to go all the way in the over back there. corner and over the dark there, corner, like yeah, and and back there, we've decided all of you don't care what That's you right. wear, the, <laughs> so we're just going to give you like this ooh, random the stuff. plus yeah. size section. Very familiar with that. Yes. So you mentioned marketing, mm-hmm. and obviously, like you've worked in the industry, Amanda. I. I know you have a lot of thoughts and feelings on this too, but every time I hear that word, every time we're talking about fashion, like that is what the industry represents to me. And I just want to say, like, I can't wait for my clients to hear this episode and get the insight <laughs> on the historical aspect. Like so much of fashion, the whole industry is marketing. It's messaging and it's all like uh-huh. really arbitrary and cleverly crafted in such a way that like it it feeds capitalism like it makes it easier to sell Mm -hmm. more to more people and make more money and it's all so much about profit like even the idea of gendered clothing a a piece of fabric the thread and embellishments used the garments themselves are not inherently gendered like can we can we acknowledge that right they are clothing so Something I want to share, I think this is a good opportunity, is like when I'm speaking with clients about this idea of gendered fashion, it's I don't use terms like women's clothing or men's clothing. I say clothing marketed to women, clothing marketed to men. Mm-hmm. It's like a really subtle shift in language, but is a a very bold statement. I want I want to acknowledge that I fucking know what they the big fashion is up to i also want to help educate and empower my clients too like you don't have to subscribe to this narrative right like you can form your own opinions and your own stories and you make your own choices mm-hmm. about like you know borrowing from not just one section like you can take pieces and elements that you like from everywhere here right? These garments are for you. Mm-hmm. If they speak to you, they resonate with you, you know, here they are, right? It doesn't, doesn't matter which quote unquote lane, you know, or section or aisle or whatever the terminology is, right? Like, can we just agree though? Like the garments themselves don't, don't have genders, it, you know? Right. I mean, no. well, it's the same thing with like the whole like grouping people by age and telling them what they can wear based on that as well. Like, the, I think and perhaps I am the most comfortable disposing with all of this bullshit and like pulling it out of my brain, even though I've been swimming in a sea of it for a long time, because I've been swimming in a sea for of it for a long time. And I'm just like, oh, wow, this is all marketing that if you're this age, you need to throw out all your things that are like that. And now you need to start wearing this other thing. But don't worry. 
You're only going to get to wear that for about 10 years. And then we're going to tell you this other thing you need to wear. And if you don't do it, by God, we're going to shame you about it every day, right? Whether that's like when you're over 30, you can't wear mini skirts or you need to cut off your hair or older people shouldn't wear bright colors or people who are over this size should always cover their arms or on and on and on. Like all this stuff mm-hmm. is propaganda to get you to buy more Except, stuff. Think about it. So if Ruby <laughs> just told us, right, like the 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 system is built on this idea that the women do the shopping. So that's kind of like the core message here. If we were telling them about longevity and sustainability and history and legacy and all of that, that that would be counterintuitive. So we have to focus on new and hot. And we also have to draw these delineations between like these thresholds with age and size. Like because if they if they wore the same thing forever, even if they loved it, it meant that they're not coming back to the store to buy more. Like you know, it's it's forced again, like just like you said, it's to make more money for the industry. It's all about profit, nothing about people. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, whether it's gender or a- what people think is age or appropriate, or what you're allowed to wear based on the size of your body, like it's just all propaganda. And I know it's really hard to break up with those ideas because they are so honestly they're not even real rules but so many of us have heard them so many times how many hundreds of throughout years our lives now have we been right. told the same story that, right <laughs> right and so now we, yeah. we accept that these are just like written into law or something you know and and the reality is that they're not and it is going to take sort of like a collective effort to get rid of that because there's nothing like, and I can say this, I had someone who worked for me at my last job who I, I'll just be really up, up front. Her name was Annie. And if any of you ever are like noticed some person I'm connected to on LinkedIn named Annie wants a, is like applying for a job at your company and you want to check with me to see if you should hire them, I'm just going to be like, no, you should not hire them. So don't even ask me. But Annie, among being very bad at her <laughs> job, uh, also would like shame me on a regular basis about not dressing age appropriately. And I just was like, I feel really comfortable with what I'm wearing. But now you're kind of like making me feel like I'm the problem because I'm not. You think that like people over, I don't know, 35 are supposed to. I don't know what we're supposed to wear, but apparently there's a rule there that I was unaware of. And I I realized that like it's going to take so many of us to change to dismantle these quasi rules because for every one person who is out there and like I don't care I'm doing what I like five other people are going to push back on them and make them feel bad and so it's like we're almost stifling people being who they truly are by ascribing to these rules that aren't real rules they're just marketing I do want to push back a little bit because I think in some of these cases yes they are not like rules or laws but I also think that there's definitely like there definitely are, unfortunately, rules and laws in some places that really do enforce, you know, what people can put on their bodies at what ages or in what stage of life or based on their perceived gender. Um, And so I think we're like really lucky to live in a world where, you know, like maybe the worst that might happen, especially for folks who can pass as cis, like maybe the worst that will happen is that you'll 
be shamed by a coworker or, you know, have somebody say mean things or hurtful things, which is also pretty bad, but there's definitely also places where people can be like imprisoned or arrested for putting on certain clothing. Oh my God. There's, there's legislation and development and passing right now in America that does exactly that criminalizes (laughs) transgenderism or wearing clothing that signals something other than what someone perceives as your assigned gender it's fucking scary and it's real thank you for bringing that up yeah it's really scary it is really scary it's really scary these are all related to this these all stem from the same source Mm -hmm. if you think that it is horrible to arrest someone or punish them in any way because they're not dressing in the way that you feel is is acceptable as you perceive their gender to be if you if you can agree that that is ridiculous it's just as ridiculous to tell someone who's 40 that they're too old to wear a puff sleeve dress it's they all come from the same source although one is obviously way more dangerous way more i'm just unethical in every way has so many horrible repercussions that prevent put people in danger and prevent them from having a happy life but they're all they all start in the same place. And I think if you can start to see that they all begin in the same place, it becomes easier to work towards dismantling them. When it comes to what's happening in our country right now around gender and perceived gender of outsiders, I it's like one of those problems where I just like I I think I have to sit with it for even longer to see how we fix it because I just it feels like I'm still in the terror and grief mm-hmm. uh, phase of this, of what's happening in the world right now around that. And I don't I don't know what we do to make it better because the people who are making it a problem are really scary to me. Um, and I, I don't know how we, we reason. We, I don't know how we have a conversation with them about it, you know? But I do think that, like, if you start to see that these kind of start in the same place... It, it it also reminds you of how much we have to dismantle to make the world safer, I guess. I don't know. It's it's a scary time right now. Um, and, you know, I live in Texas where the legislature is like, you know, going to hear some proposed law that would basically may, mean that a stranger could see you on the street and decide that you must be trans and report you to the police where you would be arrested and they would get a $5,000 reward how do we think that's going to go well? That is so terrifying. Like, there are a million ways in which that is a nightmare. Um, it's clearly from the makers of... White supremacy, colonialism, oh. fucking patriarchy, all of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was, like, a double whammy last week where they were talking about this proposed law and then also at the same time, like, a, a lawsuit that's being heard where some guy... I feel like I'm calling him some guy, but a guy is suing some friends of a former partner of his and some coworkers who helped her access abortion pills. And, and here in Texas, like that's totally a chill lawsuit to file. Um, and I feel like it's the same kind of thing where it's like, Oh, well we we're just going to have people out there that just the regular people of the world uh, help us assert control over others. It's really tough. It's totally scary. It's totally it's really scary. scary. And I, I hear you, Amanda, about just feeling stuck in the like fear and grief um, 
I can, I can very much relate to that, but I think, yeah, it's, it's also important to like, to do what we can to, you know, pull whatever strings we can or use whatever leverage we have. Like Maggie, I think it's so sweet when you were talking about how, like, if you see anybody, you know, being a troll to anyone you care about on social media, that you will go to bat for them and, and like stick up for that person, like in comments or DMs or whatever. Like, I think, you know, it's such a small thing, but I think stuff like that, like really does make a difference. Um, just sticking up for people when you, when you see that kind of behavior. I mean, just so much of this is, it stems from misinformation and miseducation. And sometimes the misinformation is the marketing of the fashion industry that tells you you have to dress a certain way when you're, you have a certain body. But a lot of it also is just straight up misinformation about what it, what, who trans people are, who non-binary people are, what, what they're really up to. You know what I mean? We talked about this before we started recording, but I immediately, when I came out as non-binary on Instagram, received messages from people accusing me of grooming. And to be honest, um, the only grooming I'm doing is of my cat, Ray, you know, and I'm constantly grooming him. But that's about it. Oh, God. (laughs) So I, I shared about a troll on Instagram earlier in this conversation. And what you just shared with me on here amanda made me think of another situation like this is all hitting like really deeply hitting home for me right i'm i'm thinking a lot about not only the people in my personal life but my client relationships too the people who come to me to get support on like unpacking and unlearning all of this shit right and i think god i've got my work cut out for me and i know i'm only one person and like the best and I mm-hmm. guess most most impact I can have is like one person at a time. God, we're we've got billions of people on this planet. That's going to be really hard, but it it is. It's like it's one interaction at a time, one conversation, one message. But I I'm thinking about another Instagram troll. I was on another podcast, um, <laughs> you know, and the the podcast host shared like a little snippet of our conversation where. By the way, context, this was Pride Month, okay? Like, I don't want to bury the lead here. I think it happened Pride Month last year. (laughs) They shared a snippet on their profile of our conversation where I was talking about working with trans and gender-fluid youth. Like, not only do I work with adults who are maybe experiencing transition or exploring gender and style for the very first time, Mm -hmm. but... I've had parents and caregivers reach out to me and trust me with their children, right? And so I'm sharing about this experience mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I like I don't want to give that asshole airtime, but the it was it hurt so bad. They said, Okay, groomer. And it like it it feels gross in my mouth to Ugh. share it. But I'm saying this because this yeah. is the kind of rhetoric that's happening. There's there are people who are spreading messages that people who are not cisgender, white, and heterosexual are predatory or dangerous or like sexual deviants or something. Like even someone like myself who <sighs> is really just trying to help, right? Trying to trying to show support. Just being a good yeah. person and a good member of society. Yeah. 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 
doing the best you can. Like, as someone who has survived yeah. trauma and emotional and physical abuse myself, like the idea of anyone in the world thinking that I, you know, I, I am some sort of predator or deviant. Like it, it makes me sick. It really hurts. Uh, um, you know, it's, yeah. it's been a while now. It's been yeah. almost a year, but it still freaking stings, you know, to, even though a total stranger troll wow. doesn't deserve my time or energy, like this shit happens and it hurts. So I want, I want people listening to know that too. Like it's real. Yeah. I mean, I feel like one of my like catchphrases of, 2023 so far i mean i know we're only three months in has been like uh yeah stuff on the internet can hurt your feelings stuff on the internet can traumatize you stuff on the internet can trigger past feelings of past experiences you had that were really traumatic and that's because the internet is real life too it's not Mm -hmm. virtual reality i'm not like stepping into like an animated series about my life when i go onto instagram oh, no, and check my dms real person right? behind that keyboard and, make no mistake mm-hmm. yeah exactly exactly i do i also just think i mean and i don't want to go too far into this but i don't think that a lot of people who are using that term groomer understand what they're saying i just think it's been thrown out there as like it's like snowflake but yeah. in a new way it's a new it's a it's the new version of snowflake it's for people who you you don't agree with their values and this is a way that you know you can you can other them in a really easy way um and it it really i it makes me angry because it actually uh really i don't know it strips that word of the true meaning and and how deeply traumatic and fucked up it is when grooming is actually happening right totally um it's like, I'm just like, yes. stop it, you know, like you're you, not that it's a good word, but you're ruining a word that is really powerful in terms of conveying a specific type of predatory behavior that is very common, very devious and very damaging. Like, don't don't let's not throw it to people who are caring about pronouns. OK, yeah, it's, yeah. it's minimizing whoever you're using it against, like you know, you're weaponizing that term, but in doing so, like appropriating it for these other contexts, you're, you're minimizing it for yeah. it's like, I guess, true and authentic historical definition. Like we're, we're kind of missing the point. Um, yeah, we're definitely missing the point. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Close Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. 
all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriela Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, 
online at highenergyvintage.com and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the coding that's like the sort of gender coding that exists within clothing. And then I thought, Maggie, you could share some of the stories of the ways in which you have worked with your clients to make them feel comfortable in their clothing, especially when it comes to gender. So I was telling both of you that I tried really hard at one of my jobs, tried so hard to create, and and it, it probably sounds so easy on paper, a button-up, a button-up shirt that would fit people of all genders and sizes. I say this out loud now, and I'm like, Amanda, you were an idiot. That was never going to work out (laughs) because you'd have to make so many different shirts, right? You'd have to have a store that was just that shirt and all the incarnations it could be in to fit all the different (laughs) kinds of bodies, right? And it would just be that one colorway of that shirt, and that's all you'd sell there, right? (laughs) There'd be like 200 SKUs (laughs) of one shirt in there so that you could... And even still, it wouldn't it wouldn't be fully gender inclusive, fu- fully body inclusive, right? Because the, you'd be like, oh, well, that person's torso is shorter than that person's. Oh, mm-hmm. man, now we can go in the back real quick and make another shirt, right? And we would just be like making shirts and making shirts and making shirts. But I tried really, really hard and it was like not a success. Spoiler. But what th- what threw me for a loop is I knew I, I was like, listen, they're going to be this is not going to fit everyone. I am not naive. I can't really wear a button up comfortably because I'm a busty person with narrow shoulders. And so it just like never works for me. It's always like too big if it's going to like fit in my chest or, you know, like there, there are many obstacles there. I also have a really short torso. So I need like a little baby length button up if I'm going to wear something like mm-hmm. that. And, but I still was like, I, I want to fit as many people as possible. And I want this to be just like gender neutral. Like anyone wears it, anyone can come in and wear it. And, what was the sticking point that prevented a lot of uh, male customers from buying it was that the buttons were on so-called the wrong side of the shirt. And I was like, oh, right. There are rules. Who, who I, I'm sure these rules come from oh, yeah. history about which yeah. side <laughs> your shirt buttons up on, right? So yeah, I actually have a funny. There's a funny mnemonic because I this actually comes up in my in my work a lot. Like right now, I'm working in costuming, and okay, um, a lot of times we'll have to make like a male and female version of things for costumes. Um, but uh, yeah, when I was in fashion school, my f- fashion professor said on. Um, on women's tops, it buttons right over left because women are always right, <laughs> which, which has always stuck with me. Um, so I always remember it that way. It's like right over left for women's wear and left over right for men's wear. And the, the historical reasoning for that is that um, people, like 
you know, back in the day, right? Like ladies <laughs> wouldn't dress themselves. <laughs> right. oh. There's that word again, ladies. But yeah, we, you know, women, women wouldn't dress themselves. They would be dressed by someone else because the clothing was like rather complicated. Um, mm-hmm. And again, we're talking about like high society people who are wearing these very like elaborate gowns and stuff, not just like anyone i'm sure a lot of people still did dress themselves um (laughs) but yeah so the idea is assuming that people are right hand dominant right another another silly rule about bodies (laughs) definitely definitely. (laughs) as a lefty i've always struggled with this i'm like surrounded Um, (laughs) by lefties i live in a world of left-handed people i it's very strange so funny yeah so yeah but the idea is assuming assuming right hand dominance it's easier if it's right over left for someone else to do it. And if it's left over right, it's easier to do it yourself. Um, Which is why closures go in those directions based on this like arbitrary gender division. So arbitrary. (laughs) Yeah. So arbitrary as if like, as if high, like, you know, fancy men weren't, they were probably also being dressed by someone right? else, but, but that's what I was going to ask. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. were they always expected to dress themselves, or was that probably a thing not. for men as well? <laughs> but wow. maybe it was designed to look like they could have if they wanted to. I watched a lot of Downton Abbey, mm. and I feel like there was some assistance with dressing for the men as yeah. well. And I also have watched all the seasons of The Crown, and so it just seems like they were getting a lot of help. And I will say that, like. There are times where I wish someone would come and help and dress me. I had a really horrible experience earlier this week where my hair got tangled up as I was putting on a strapless bra. Oh, no. And it was like the <laughs> the problem was getting worse and worse. And I was like too embarrassed to ask for help. So then I was just like, I'm going to put the dress on over it. And then it'll all sort out. I'll just shake it all out. <laughs> and then the arm, the sleeve got stuck in my hair, which was stuck in the strapless bra. And then I did have to go get help because then the hook. And I was also stuck in, like, my scalp, basically. So, I, you know, there are times where I long for an era of someone coming and dressing me who isn't my my partner because um, it's a vulnerable <laughs> time. I, I want a professional. Um, but I, I just thought it was so funny that I was getting feedback from people who are like, oh, yeah, sorry, men won't buy this because it buttons on the wrong side. Yeah. And I was, like, interesting because I haven't heard from anyone who is a woman who is saying like, oh, I actually like, I, I'm sorry, but I can't wear this because it buttons on the men on the wrong side. Or- yeah, well, I think a lot of unisex stuff um, or stuff that's billed as unisex that are those types of garments that have buttons or closures, they typically default to the men's style. Which is something I brought up when we were preparing for this that, you know, as I said, I worked for a retailer that was really focused on bringing unisex clothing into like and I mean, all of this is like heavily quotes into like women's sizing, right? Mm-hmm. They were trying to address cisgendered women in more, they were saying unisex clothing, but it was really far more masculine aesthetic in terms of like suiting mm-hmm. and the kind of prints and patterns and silhouettes that we associate with traditional menswear. And I would always say to them, like the people who, you know, my the people on my team, the people who employed me, I'd say like, you know, this isn't really unisex clothing right like you understand that right like we're we're just making like men's clothing to fit cisgendered women like we're not this isn't genderless at all because genderless would be like you would be could wear anything and it wouldn't matter but we're we're saying like if we're leaning into this like oh we're for tomboys aesthetic Mm -hmm. what we're really saying is we just want menswear aesthetic 
in different sizes. (laughs) (laughs) And I I was like, this is not gender free. But then, you know, there was a little bit of a trend around like 2019, 2020, where a lot of larger retailers, like I know Zara did this. And I think even like, strangely enough, American Eagle did this, where they were like, we're making unisex clothing, right? Gender free clothing. And it was like sweatshirts, sweatpants, tunicky things. T-shirts. T-shirts. Baggy, yeah, like wide, wide like pants, mm-hmm. right? And you have to wonder, like, well, couldn't a dress or a skirt be a part of that? You know, or like I just, totally. it, it's always focuses on knits for sure too. It's like, oh, in this future where we are dressing genderless, uh, we're just all wearing solid, unprinted knit clothing in loose silhouettes, <laughs> and I just, I think that is. Like, that's not genderless either. No. Like, that feels like... I think that we have so many problems to unpack <laughs> as a society. This is a minor one, mind yeah. you. But w- anytime we talk about gender or genderless or unisex clothing, it's always like, oh, but, like, it has to be masculine it, mm-hmm. at its core, right? Because if it was so-called feminine, meaning, like, I don't know if it had, like, a floral print or lace trim or was a dress, it would be feminine and then it wouldn't be genderless i think there's such a it's like strangely that like i mean and and this totally speaks to like you know just like sexism misogyny all of that that true like anything that is so-called feminine in terms of detail or silhouette could never be genderless it's like inferior or just so signaling femininity how would you market that we can't even look at it especially to men like where where do you even begin like wow I think I think a lot of that also has to do with just like patriarchy, right? Like we mm-hmm. see masculinity as being this like hegemony that's like at the top that like everything aspires to be, right? And so mm-hmm. if we're gonna go unisex, like the idea is that like anyone, you know, of any gender would want to dress like, you know, like the style of the thing we associate with like power and dominance. Um, and that to dress like something that we perceive culturally as like less than or, mm-hmm. you know, more marginal. It's like, well, why would you want to do that? Because you're essentially like giving up power. Um, and I think that's why we see like a lot more of those fashions skewing more towards menswear that are supposedly claiming to be unisex. Um, it's like proximity to like power and patriarchy. Unfortunately, I wish it weren't. You got me thinking about (laughs) fat phobia now, and I I hope we're going to have time in this conversation for you to tell us about sizing and (laughs) unpacking all of that. But, like, not only (laughs) is it, you know, does the default sort of skew towards the masculine and, like, even quote unquote genderless clothing sort of borrows that aesthetic as the default, like, there's also Mm -hmm. this idea that, like, thinness as the standard as you were were talking about power ruby i just i was thinking about this the other night as i was getting ready to eat dinner and i'm like you know i'm I'm like the fattest i've ever been in my life and i'm the happiest i've ever been in my life and part (laughs) of that is because my partner is a trained chef it's all this good food and love that i get right Mm -hmm. but i was like remember back in the day right these stories that we read about in history books like fatness or like larger bodies was associated with prosperity i'm like 
Mm-hmm. I, I'm a rich guy now. I like I've arrived. I am the <laughs> ultimate in power and prosperity. <laughs> but the fashion industry doesn't see it that way. Like the default is thin. The default is white. Mm-hmm. It's masculine. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. It's so. It's f- all the phobics, right? Like, um, <laughs> and discrimination and just like exclusion. I think is the better term for all of that. Um, but. Yeah, no, it is. It is. I mean, I think like just thinking of these like so-called like genderless unisex collections that we've seen over the past few years, even if they are like from a fast fashion retailer, the prices are always higher. Everyone in the campaign is very thin, maybe not always white, but very like tradition in the lines with what we as a society currently see as attractive, you know, like like beyond like average human beauty, like epic like top one percent of most beautiful faces that we can imagine as a society right now right very symmetrical yeah, yeah. yeah very symmetrical like exactly. uber you're like how did that even happen <laughs> right yeah like definitely like it is just this like i look at those collections you know honestly and when i was sort of trying to like you know come to terms with my gender and how i was going to explain that to people I was seeing a lot of these collections and of course I'm like intrigued right away. I'm like, oh, this is this is probably for people like me, right? Whatever that means. And then I'd go look at them and I'd be like, oh, oh man, nobody is ever gonna take me seriously when I tell them I'm non-binary based on mm-hmm. like this, because this is what they think it is probably now, right? That you have to be this person in this huge t-shirt with matching wide leg pants and probably like a pair of Nike shoes with like just stunning cheekbones or else you're like not, you're not (laughs) like a non-binary person. Anyway, those things actually almost like do more harm than they do good. And I doubt they make very much money on top of that. So it's just like, that's why we haven't seen much of it in the past year, I think. Yeah. Um, So I think that is a great transition into talking about size and fat phobia and how it relates to the size and fit of the clothing that we have right now, regardless of gender. Um, So do you want to tell us a little bit about that, Ruby? Um, Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. I actually started doing some research about this a few years ago um, when I started an indie sewing pattern line um, because I knew that I wanted to have like an inclusive size range. And it started to make me think like I've, I've always been kind of like just over the edge of plus size myself myself and so I'm like okay like all these size charts are stopping basically at my body measurements like if I want to build out this inclusive size chart like where like how where are we what like what sizes are people basically right like what are <laughs> what is body measurement data where is it right from? right um and I fell down this huge rabbit hole of research and I was like oh my gosh this is really fascinating um and so yeah so it's it's, it's very, I, I think it's really interesting. Um, and it basically, you know, supports this feeling, I think that we all have currently of like, what even our size is? Like, why am I looking at the size chart from this company? And it's like, mm-hmm. ridiculously small, narrow size band. And like, the measurements don't make any sense. Or like, I order something and it's like nowhere near what I think it's going to be based on the measurements that they gave me. Um, so anyway, to, to go to go back in time, back to the 1800s, the good old 1800s, Industrial Revolution times, um, <laughs> it, it kind of stems um, from this Belgian philosopher and astronomer um, named Adolf Kettelet. And at the time, he was really pushing um, 
this theory of averages, uh, which at the time was like this really cutting edge, like mathematical concept. So, you know, we all know like an average, right? Like you mm -hmm. have a bunch of numbers and you're like, I'm going to add them all together and divide them by the number of numbers I started with and we'll figure out what the average is. Um, and at the time, they it was considered groundbreaking because they were using this for astronomy. So they would need to calculate distances between celestial objects in space, but their, um, their actual tools were very imprecise. And so they were like, all right, if we take the measurement between like, you know, the sun and like this star 20 times, and then we average them all together, we're going to get a much more accurate reading of what that distance actually is than if we just measure it once. Um, and then it's like totally different the next day or something. So mm -hmm. they're coming up with this theory of averages and everyone's like, wow, that's really cool. That's really interesting. Um, and Ketele is basically like, what if we applied that line of thinking to something like a set of body measurements? Um, and I think he specifically got like a set of measurements that were like from, um, from some like European army at the time. I can't remember which country. Um, Scotland. He was like, oh, like I'm gonna, oh, it was Scotland. Yes, thank your, you, Maggie. Your workshop, <laughs> wow. yeah. Oh, I learned that from Ruby, y'all. Ruby taught me that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's the Scottish army. Thank you, Maggie. Um, so he averages them all together and he's like, and he's like, if I get the average of these, it will be like the most perfect Scottish soldier. Wow, this is and great. So then, I love this already. <laughs> so he starts to like impose this mo this like moral value on the average, right? Because then oh. suddenly we have this idea of like, well, if you're the most average, you're like the most perfect somehow, right? Like if you close if you're closest to the average, it's somehow like the best. Um and so yeah, it's very strange. And this sort of like seeps into our cultural understanding of like averages and also if you think about it it's also industrial revolution where like mass mm -hmm. manufacturing things for the first time and so all of these things that like would have been custom made for people and it wouldn't have mattered like whether your <laughs> measurements were average or not you know like it, it wasn't even anything to like relate them to um suddenly we start to see this average being used to calculate things like okay like we're mass manufacturing rifles for the trigger and stuff like that where it's like oh we'll use the average <laughs> um and so yeah so they also start using this for clothing and i think the biggest the first time it was used that got like a lot of like press and praise um was actually for the american civil war um oh wow yeah so apparently abraham lincoln was like a big fan of Cadillac, and he was like we need to really quickly produce all these uniforms for the army um, so why don't we use this averages theory and we'll just like figure out some sizes that like make sense with the data that we have. So people will sort of fit into a range of like small, medium, large or whatever. Um, and we'll just manu mass manufacture these uniforms and it'll be really efficient and like really cheap. And people were like, wow, this is so cutting edge and incredible. Um, because <laughs> before that, like military uniforms would be custom sewn. Um, wow. For each person. It just makes yeah. a war so much more time consuming. You need like a longer lead time to start a war. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Right? I know. Well, that was the thing. It was like they needed to move quickly. And so they were really like relying on the technology of the time um, to like make this make this happen. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of like the first time that people were starting to hear about like standard sizing and it seemed like this really great concept. And as we were starting to like mass manufacture like workwear, um, 
and other clothing for the industrial revolution and for all these workers and people that like needed this more disposable or like cheaper clothing um it just started to gain popularity as like okay well this will be on catalogs too i know you had some great episodes about catalogs (laughs) (laughs) um not that long ago um but yeah like that you know if you're ordering something from a catalog like how do you know it's gonna fit like well there's a size chart um so yeah so that's kind of like the birth of of standard sizing as we know it and then of course it kind of like grew from there um something that i think is kind of important to point out but also you know unfortunately this like binary gender distinction is that men's sizing often goes off of your actual body measurement yes. so like um if you're uh, pants or something you know like yeah 32 waist and 33 inseam or something right and that's the actual like inch measurement right of, and it's consistent right unless yeah. someone had yeah. like the, the factory like messed up right like it's consistent mm-hmm. it's not so yeah I don't know. I don't even yeah. know what the right adjective is to describe how women's clothing is sized at this point, but well, it's not a good one. Well, yes. Yeah. It's no, it's really not. And it's kind of by design, actually, because one of the hardest selling points of getting women to purchase ready to wear was that women, because of all of this fat phobia and like body shame and whatever, didn't want to disclose their body measurements. <laughs> um, that was like a big hurdle. People were like, I'm not going to tell someone my size. Like, why would I do that? Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to purchase ready to wear garments, you have to kind of know what size you are. And so companies started to sort of invent these like codes of like not real numbers, <sighs> which is why we have like two, four, six, eight, and like, you know, these really arbitrary yeah. numbers that are tied to body measurements, but each brand kind of does it differently. Right. Um, and then you also start to see, like, I think, I'm not sure how long they've been doing this for, but I know it definitely exists now is like what they call like vanity sizing. Um, maybe not so much anymore because there's been like a lot of pushback on just like the frustratingness. Yeah. There are some brands that still do it. I haven't bought from this place in a really long time, but I remember specifically Old Navy was one of those places where I would like go there with my mom and buy a pair of pajama pants and I would need like an extra, extra small, but I was a solid medium or large at say like urban outfitters i was like i'm what is happening here and part of me would be like (laughs) because i also struggle with body image was like maybe i should start buying all my clothes at old navy because it you know really boosts my morale it's a market yeah it definitely is customers by making them feel good about themselves by labeling your clothes with these arbitrary and it's like you're it's not like your waist size changed from like that garment to a garment you bought somewhere (laughs) else it's like just a completely arbitrary label. Does that stem from like the attachment of moral value to that idea of average and like the the prototypical or like the um, ideal? I don't know. Like, because there there is no moral value attached to body size. Like, I tell my clients all the time there there are power. There's power in those numbers. Like knowing them about mm-hmm. yourself. Because what the fashion industry has to offer is like, there's no real truth there. You can't rely on no. that information. Yeah. No, I think that's a that's a good question though, Maggie, about like the averages. And it's kind of funny that you say that because when I, I was reading, like there've been a bunch of sort of like DIY surveys, like in, especially in the sewing community of like measurement polls to see yeah, like how people mm-hmm. feel about sizing. And especially like if you're a pattern designer, like what... um 
you know, what range should you be like shooting for? What's going to like catch most people? Um, and I remember reading like some survey results from some, some pattern maker survey. And it was kind of funny because it was like everybody that like the finding was that like everybody thinks they're a medium. Like <laughs> it was like, if you ask people like what size they like, they think they should fall into like in your size range or whatever, like everybody like thinks they're a medium and thinks that they're like in the middle kind of like regardless. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not really. yeah. yeah. Exactly. so I think wow. I think there is something like we all want to think that we're like right and like I think there is kind of this like this like maybe moral perceived moral value to being a medium or to being like or just being like well I don't know like there's people smaller than me there's people bigger than me like medium um, <laughs> I think it's like this, like uh, this expectation, especially, you know, uh, like, I don't know. It's like the way women are socialized is to be like really humble. Mm. And so the most humble thing you could say is like, oh, I'm totally. average. I'm like medium. nothing special. Right. Not, yeah. yeah. Like don't no need to stop here. You know, I'm not full of myself. Like that kind of thing. I think that there is something to that as well that you can it would be unbecoming for you to toot your own horn in any way even to just say oh i'm i'm really tall yeah that's true that's true and like this desire to stick out minimize yeah 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 just take up take up this take up little space i don't know now i'm just like putting out conspiracy (laughs) theories i'm sorry everyone (laughs) no it sounds legit there's probably some truth to it i mean I have always felt like the pressure to just be like, oh, yeah, I'm like, whatever. In any regard. Well, even like, I don't know, I'm thinking about like in workplaces or something, right? Like we're not supposed to like ask for too much or take up too much space or yeah, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of socialization going back to that general stuff, right? That like we're not supposed to think of ourselves as exceptional or outside of the, I don't know, (laughs) outside of the average. Yeah. Right, we're just just, just a medium, medium over here. Yeah. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com.
Com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear underscore st. Dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicwear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicwear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. I mean, this really just takes us to like the next question, which, you know, let's go back to my ridiculous fool's errand of deciding that I would make a button up that would fit people <laughs> of all genders and sizes and it would be like NBD, right? What are the challenges we face here in terms of like if we wanted to? I mean, I think probably I know the answer already is like 
mass production production of clothes that are going to fit everyone well is kind of impossible. Do you, do you think that or do you think that there is an opportunity there for it to be better? I mean, I think something that we don't talk about enough when we're talking about trying to design in like a genderless way or a way that fits everybody is like we don't talk about the variation in proportion that exists so much like even within binary gender categories like not all cis women are shaped the same way not all cis men are shaped the same Mm -hmm. way and so like this idea that like by doing a genderless collection or figuring out how to fit like what's really just these two averages right (laughs) that we're like deciding are like i mean it's not even an average but like we're sort of deciding that that's the the rule or the standard that we're going by it's like even if we come up with something that would fit those two shapes that we think of as like stereotypically cis male and stereotypically cis female there's still so much body Mm -hmm. variation that exists outside of those parameters in terms of like height differences or you i think you mentioned like like just having like a short torso or like yeah like arms or narrower shoulders or whatever so i i don't know i think i mean for me i i feel like a return to to more custom like if even if not fully custom made like more customizable clothing um Mm -hmm. is probably the best way to like fit all the bodies Give us that seam allowance bag. Yeah, give like, us the seam allowance. Seriously. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know. I know because, you know, one of the reasons I became really, really into vintage in my late teens and early 20s is because, you know, I have like a short torso. I have larger breasts, but the narrow shoulders. And I just like have nothing like nothing really ever fit me very well that I could just go buy at the store. Like it was just, it was just never right. And I could go, you know, to the thrift store and buy something vintage and bring it home. And thanks to that seam allowance, take out the chest, bring in the waist really easily, right? With just a sewing machine and pretty rudimentary sewing skills and have something that was essentially like custom to my body and very flattering and made me feel really confident. But I would be hard pressed to go to thrift store right now and buy any like clothing made in the past 10 years for sure and be able to do that unless I bought something that was much, much larger and then really cut it up a lot. Like, cause there's like the seam allowance is like, if it's a quarter of an inch, it's a miracle. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> like, and I mean, totally. that's a cost cutting yeah, measure. They do it so they know? can do it faster yeah. and cheaper because those large seam allowances are harder yeah. to sew. And, you know, if you're you're going to have to, like, sew the seam with a straight stitch and then, like, finish the edge, like, with a serger or something. So that's, like, you're basically sewing each seam twice. Whereas, like, now a lot of, especially the cut-and-sewn knits, it's just serged. So, like, you mm-hmm. know, they do it in one step really quickly, but it cuts off all the seam allowance because it clean finishes it at the same time. So there's nothing really to play with, unfortunately, on the on the newer garments. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. And it is one of those things that distresses me a bit because... I've worked in the industry long enough to know that like all the clothes that we would make would fit some people, some garments, less people than others. Like there would be somewhere we would be like, well, it'll fit someone. And then we'd all kind of laugh awkwardly and move on to the next project. Uh, And so just knowing that and then knowing that it's really, you know, it's really difficult for anyone to adapt that clothing to get that good fit because one, a lot of people don't have sewing skills anymore. And two, the garment itself is constructed in a way that just basically prevents that yeah. in the first place. 
It's just it like is. so sad because there really are so many clothes that are never going to really be worn because of the nature of the size of them, mm-hmm. the way they fit or don't fit. And it's it's really bad. I It's like interesting because hearing you talk about how a lot of this began with this idea of averages, what I found in my career is that we were moving away from even what would be considered sort of averages and getting really sort of niche and specific around what our brand mm. felt should be the body shape we were yeah. focusing on. Like, for example, Mod Cloth was like, of all the places I've worked, the most size inclusive and the most the most serious about being as size inclusive as possible. Yet we really focused on an hourglass mm-hmm. shape as being the standard that we were building all of our sizing off of. And that's that's not no. all bodies, right? And then there would be even more specific things like at Nasty Gal, the, the founder of the company found felt that like large breasts were not aesthetically pleasing and really liked a, like, a, like wider oh. hips, sort of like wider <laughs> hips, narrower top kind yeah. of body type. And so that's what all of our clothing was. And I was in a, a design meeting where the designer said like, hey, we're not we're not going to be making tops anymore that that accommodate over a C cup. Oh my gosh. Because it's just not aesthetically pleasing. <gasps> and I was like, oh my God, I know. Wow. As I'm sitting there in my D bra, feeling like, oh wow, one more th- reason to hate myself. <gasps> mm. oh. You know, I'm apparently unesthetically pleasing on top of all my other flaws. Um, you know, it's just like, I- I've seen brands really go after this niche where it's like, oh, we're going to model all of our sizing off of our founder. Yeah off of this person we've imagined mm-hmm. who's our muse that's not even a real person. Uh, very few companies are really doing it off of like actual data. It makes this idea of the average seem like scientific at this point, <laughs> right? <laughs> I know. Well, actually, so one statistic that I that I came across when I was doing size research for my pattern company was that um, the average waist size in the U.S. is between 38 and 40 inches, which wow. is like, if you think about it, that is where most brands, if they even go that high, that's the highest if, size. Big if. Yeah. Yeah. That big is if. like the highest yeah. size. And so a lot of them stop at like a 36 inch waist um, or sometimes yeah. even lower, like 34, 32. Um, so it's crazy to think. Yeah. It's like actually if they modeled it off of the actual average, that would that would actually be kind of wonderful. But I think you're yeah. right. I think they're just kind of making these arbitrary choices based off of like, what is like a popular body shape or the, bo- yeah, the body shape of, you know, whoever's putting their name on the line or their, you know, top influencers or whatever. If you go try on new clothes right now and they don't fit you, I want to assure you it's not because there's something wrong with you. hundred percent. It's something that is wrong with the system, you know? I know that sounds, like, really big and, like, maybe overstated, but that's that's the reality of it. And I know that that's really hard. That's really hard to believe sometimes when you're trying on clothes after clothes after clothes after clothes that don't exactly fit you right and make you feel like you're the problem. You are 100% not the problem here. And I wish someone would have told me that when I was, like, maybe 13. Oh, same. <laughs> <laughs> right, right? Same. Um, okay, so I thought, you know, we've been talking for a while. I thought we'd just end this up because I really wanted to really hear Maggie's experiences helping her yeah. clients uh, with this whole idea of gender and probably fit and size because, man, we just got to break up with size charts. 
or at least we can read the measurement part, but don't look at anything else. You know, <laughs> All of that comes up. I mean, and I, I make a point in our earliest conversations to like, kind of start here. Like, mm-hmm. if you are hat, like, if you're experiencing challenges in retail environments, right, like, let's unpack that. Right here, here's the story that they're trying to tell you. Here is the the role, the prescription, the rules, whatever. This is, it's by design, it's systemic. So if we can acknowledge that first thing, like your experience going forward forward is gonna be different, right? It's all about like taking your power back. It's the buying choices, but it's also the power in body measurements and understanding how that translates into garment measurements and like, the relationship of drape and things like that on your body, right? So mm-hmm. we talk about all of those things. Um, I am working with an increasing number of, let's say, non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender fluid individuals, people of, you know, members of the queer community coming to me because there is a, a large population of people who are completely excluded from this conversation. Anything that they might see in mass media, for example, like the representation isn't there. They're like, Mm-mm. and sometimes they're not sure who they are or how right. they identify or where maybe they fall on the gender spectrum. That's not necessarily what I'm trying to help them figure out. It's like creating the space to ask those questions and figure out like where where can they draw inspiration from? Like, where can they access resources? And I'll tell you my, my second hand first approach. Part of the reason for doing that is because we don't see, we don't, we don't see a, a diverse representation in a lot of retail stores. It's like, no. there's sizing as is the issue. There's the binary gender is an issue as well, but it's also, there are mannequins and it's like these four pieces fit together only in this way. And here is your outfit. Like there's no versatility. Yeah. There's no imagination or creativity. So you mentioned thrifting, Amanda, that's what we do, right? It's right. The pieces that you find in those spaces are as unique as the people walking into those stores. And so any, any client story I might have to tell is usually centered around like a thrifting experience where we're inside of a thrift store. Um, one of the most mind blowing things that I have ever witnessed. And I, you know, talk about feeling humbled and also at the same time privileged a trans feminine client here in Seattle. Obviously she had been socialized as male her entire life. She actually came out and transitioned in her early 20s so had no frame of reference whatsoever except for everything she learned about clothing marketed to men right including shoes like where where do i begin she's like this is so daunting to me because it's so different too like i said it's so siloed yeah and the way the stuff is sold the way it's displayed yeah the way it's sized all of it is it's it's as if we're like different species Exactly. You know, it's so fascinating how, I don't know. Anyway, and you were, so yeah. You all what, were talking about this, this button-up shirt, like the, <laughs> you know, the infamous button-up shirt. Like that, that kind of garment, that silhouette, that whole concept was actually triggering for her. 
So it was a decision that she kind of made early on. I'm like, okay, if there are no rules and there aren't, what what are your own personal boundaries? Like, what can we rule out automatically? Because knowing what you don't like and what doesn't resonate with you is just as valuable, especially, I would say, more valuable in the early stages if you don't yet know what you like. It's like, okay, let's figure out what you don't like. So we knew, like, going in that button-up shirts were not not going to be a thing for her. She's like, I'm not interested. So we started exploring. And I, I do this with every client, regardless of body type, size, gender expression. What do you like, right? We're trying some things. We're experimenting. And the, the first time she ever put on a wrap front dress specifically. So we're in a thrift store. And the way that the environment was set up, there was like, the dressing room and there was a full-length mirror immediately outside of the dressing room so as she walks out she can see herself but where i was standing was like perpendicular so instead of seeing her reflection i saw her expression seeing herself in the mirror and it was i i witnessed her experiencing gender euphoria for the first time so all of those shitty moments in her life up to that point with the button-up shirt was like this is a whole new world and i I could see her like, she's like checking out her chest and just like the look on her face was outstanding. And what it took to facilitate that is listening, right? Like, what do you like? What do you not like? And taking that intel and making informed suggestions, but also like letting her take the lead. So at this point, we don't even walk into a store until we know your body measurements and your personal style preferences. Because this is not about like, buying a bunch of shit and trying it and wasting money and time and energy. It's like we're figuring out all of these really hard lifelong questions so that you can take ownership of this maybe for the first time in your whole life as opposed to passively engaging or like waiting for the fashion industry to tell you what's next or what's for you, right? Um, that was That was powerful. It's also tough to talk through the negative experiences that they've had in their life up to that point. Yeah. That's what this work is. We got to like, we kind of have to unload and unpack all of that shit and figure out. And there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. And then the question is, (sighs) what of all of this, like if we separate it into metaphorical piles, which of these piles is actually useful for the future and Mm -hmm. moving forward and everything else, like, doesn't mean that it it doesn't exist or it didn't have an impact. Like it's not serving you right now. So technically it's kind of other people's shit. You know, it's it's patriarchy mm-hmm. and colonialism and white suprem- supremacy and transphobia and all of those things. Like everything bad. Everything bad. It shouldn't be involved in clothes, right? It's in your life. So it's in all of our lives. It's in the news. <laughs> it's in the media. But you don't actually have to carry it with you. Yeah. You get to decide. Um, what else can I tell you? Oh my gosh, I worked with with a teenager who, the, one of the first questions I ask upon meeting someone for the first time is, what are your pronouns, <laughs> right? Can you share those with me? Also, another question is like, what kind of compliments resonate with you? Because I don't, we were talking about language evolving, like the word cute, for example, doesn't land mm-hmm. with everyone. And in this case, mm-hmm. this is a, a teenager. So cute was like 
they internalized it as like infantilization kind of that like made them feel yeah. young and diminished. Yeah. So yeah. I'm like, what are your pronouns? Let's talk about language. What resonates with you? What words don't you like? Cause I want to be able to carry that forward through our work together. And this teen told me like, they didn't care about pronouns. It was like, I don't have a specific gender identity. So, it, you know, like, let's just, and I'm like, Okay, so that's cool too. Maybe we don't know, right? I just, I don't want to get it wrong, right? I want to respect and honor whatever you decide. So ultimately they decided on they, them. I incorporated that into our work. But this particular client on the East Coast was like homeschooled for their entire life and decided right before they turned 16 that they wanted to go to public school for the first time. Wow. Yeah. So think about like, <laughs> you know, just culture shock and wow. just like social mind blowing moments, you know, like this was really challenging. And one of the things they were interested in was exploring skirts for the first time. Well, this, oh, wow. this person was also socialized as male. So most of their mm. friends and people in their like close social circles knew them as male and i'm like whether you identify as male or you're using they them pronouns or any anywhere else on the spectrum if you want to try skirts i want to help you do that right so we figure out measurements we figure out like prints and iconography that resonates with them and styles and silhouettes and they did that and it was freaking awesome because <laughs> they were like especially on a hot summer day like the feeling of a breeze without any restriction. Like they were wearing mostly jeans and sweatpants and like flannel pajama pants up to this point. So to try a skirt for the first time and be like, I like this. I've never had this experience before. I want to do this again. It's really freaking cool. And it's, it's <laughs> yeah. challenging from a social standpoint. We, we talked about that too. Like there, you may receive feedback from people. Mm-hmm in your family, right? People that you know, yeah. people that you're close to, but also at school. And I just want to like set those expectations. This might happen. And also that's not about you. Whatever they might right. say is more a reflection of them than anything else. Like maybe their fear or their lack of understanding or lack of information and education. So, you know, it's kind of a, a holistic approach and, we worked together for close to a year, uh, which meant we experienced several seasons too. So it's like, <laughs> there's the skirt, the skirt plays a role in summertime and that's amazing. But how do we wear it in other seasons? It's like, what about leggings <laughs> right? as an underlayer <laughs> or like biker shorts, um, long underwear, things like that. And it was just like something that never occurred to them. And their parents weren't didn't feel confident and equipped to have these conversations. But also there was the the added challenge of the fact that they're a teenager and this isn't really a point in like in your growing up where you you want to hang out with your parents and like have deep conversations. <laughs> you know, like there is quite a resistance there. It was like even if the parents were encouraging and did want to get involved, they were like, no. Like, I, I need to handle that. You know, like, they totally. wanted autonomy and independence. Yeah. So yeah. it was yeah. 
an honor to like bridge that i guess maggie you're just you're just doing incredible work like i wish someone would have hired you to help me when i was like 14 i think because it took me wearing a lot of costumes to get to a point where i felt confident just wearing what who i am you know but I think it just goes back to this idea that, you know, we'll often dismiss clothing as this like silly thing, the silly preoccupation. We'll dismiss people's interest and in personal style as vapid mm. and unimportant. But ultimately, like clothing has such an impact on our mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a big deal. It is a very big mm-hmm. deal. Yeah. It's a communication tool. It's kind yeah, of how I yeah. look at it. It's a mechanism for personal expression and hearing you say that amanda like it warms my heart i wish i had been able to do that when you were 14 as well but the reason why i do this is because i needed it then Mm, and it didn't exist like you know there and we're not the only ones like this is i mean it's systemic we've already talked about this there's (laughs) billions of people Uh. on this planet and we're all receiving the same general messages and it it is hurtful to our mental health. It absolutely is detrimental. So it is. It is. I mean, I as <laughs> I'm like mentally unpacking all the different phases of times I wore. Uh, they were all eras in which I wore co- clothing that felt very uncomfortable to me. Not necessarily physically uncomfortable, although I do question all those years I was wearing skirts with no tights in the middle of winter. Mm. I don't know how I was like not having hypothermia, but also just most importantly, like mentally uncomfortable where I felt like I was wearing a costume. Right. So that someone would think something about me. And ultimately it took a really long time to be like, uh, I'm just gonna wear what I want. Like for example, for me, part of that is like, I don't wear pants, sorry. Like hearing, talking about your client discovering skirts, I almost like teared up because (laughs) If <laughs> the glory of a skirt, <laughs> let me tell you. Um, but I felt for a long time that I really had to dress a certain way so people would respect me as an intellectual. Mm. Yeah, and that meant not dressing necessarily in the aesthetic that felt most comfortable to me, but so that people would think I was this thing that I am actually, no matter what I'm wearing. Mm-hmm. Right? I think there were also times where I felt like I had to be like sexy in this way that is I'm still a sexy person but that's not that version of sexy is not actually me you know um so I felt like the vanity sizing at you know uh old navy just marketing I was marketing (laughs) myself (laughs) I'm kind of surprised that the idea this concept hasn't come up in tonight's conversation of like the internalized gaze or the internalized male gaze oh If, You're right. What is wrong like with us? Episode. We're a bunch of failures <laughs> well, here, everyone. It just, We're not even medium here. Come on. <laughs> it just—it's an illustration of like everything coming back to that default of masculinity, yeah. and that—that's oh, true. Like, it always is, right? Being associated with power and superiority, and like, mm-hmm. but that—I mean, there there might be men looking at us, and they may be giving us unwanted attention, but like our choices and what we wear are ours to make like yeah yeah i think that's right there there's also like a um i don't know like i hate to use the word bravery but like there is like a like a level of of gumption maybe like in in dressing a way that feels joyful and empowering for you because i think also like you talk about like wearing a costume i think there's also a lot of people who dress in a way specifically to try to disappear 
Um, like I know there's mm-hmm. definitely been times in my life where I just haven't, you know, I'm, I'm usually pretty like playful with my clothing, but every once in a while I'll go through a phase where I just want to be invisible and I dress that way. And I yeah. think, I think a lot of people feel that way too. And I think that's one of the reasons why what you're doing is so awesome and important. Maggie is you're like, you're helping people to find that joy, um, in that thank process. You. And realize thank that, you, like, Amanda. It can be something that can bring a lot of embodiment and empowerment. I agree. It's really important. Thank you guys. (laughs) Well, this has been so much fun. What a great way to end my day. Although like, who am I kidding? I'm totally probably going to go make Instagram posts (laughs) after this. Um, (laughs) My normal uh, evening, evening job. Um, But I want to just ask, like, did either of you have any last thoughts you wanted to share? Parting words of wisdom. It's okay if you don't have any, but maybe you do. I always am really inspired by the talk shows of the 90s and how at the end the host would come out and say like some quasi wise mm. closing speech um even even <laughs> Jerry Springer would do that <laughs> so I always like to imagine like you're standing alone on the stage and there's a little spotlight on you and the audience is all just like listening breathlessly for your final wisdom but if you don't have any that's okay too because neither did they <laughs> I, I have something as, okay. as we're talking about, like, where do we go from here? What does the future of fashion look like? Um, I started watching Next in Fashion on Netflix okay. recently. And it's interesting because kind of up to this point, I had this idea in my mind that, like, the people in control of the fashion industry or making decisions, this might actually be true, but, like, there's six or eight, like, middle-aged cishet white dudes like making all the all the decisions oh they're older than middle-aged but otherwise you're right but like eventually that generation will expire literally right right so if next in fashion is a taste of what to expect in the future i'm actually pretty freaking impressed with the idea of you know they there have been a few collections and designers that have been featured on the show that talk about this idea of genderlessness and truly showing possibilities of what that can look like. And it's not just like a male presenting model in a, a feminine silhouette. It's like, we're, we're going back to the drawing board entirely. Like we're scrapping all of these conventions and building something entirely new. So I just want to say like, if you're looking for inspiration, especially on what the future can look like, Plus, it's kind of brain candy as well. Like, I love the visual stimulation of it and the conversations. <laughs> There's some some vapid pieces, but, like, even the judges are – there's diverse representation, not only with gender, but also race and body type and size. So I'm like, hey, hmm. maybe it could be different one day, um, at least with the show. It's pretty cool. Um so yeah, if you're looking for for a taste maybe of what the future could look like, check that out. Do either of you use LinkedIn at all? I wonder if any listeners are there. Okay, I do. So two resources that I can recommend that have been not only inspiring but also like informing, like people that I I follow to to figure out like what is next, what are the things that I need to know to kind mm-hmm. of evolve and adapt. Um, 
One of them is Dr. Elisa Glick, who is a trans woman. I think she lives in the middle Midwest. Um, Dr. Elisa Glick, she specializes in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and is just a, a powerhouse of information and is really kind and gentle and compassionate about how she approaches conversations. Um, so that's someone to check out. And also... I can send you links and spelling and all that if it's helpful, Amanda. Um, but Taryn yeah, Talley is someone else that I follow. Um, she is a trans woman as well who happens to be indigenous and is a marketing professional. And from that standpoint, like I, <laughs> I live for her content because she tells it like it is and breaks things down in like really <laughs> simple terms for that anyone can understand. Um, and is likewise a powerhouse. I just think she's fabulous, but also it's someone to learn from. She's someone to learn from. So yeah, check her out. Yeah, I'm excited about this because finally, like, let's get some good content into my <laughs> LinkedIn feed because it's currently <laughs> pretty abysmal. It gets bad there, <laughs> yes. But there there are bright spots um, for sure. To follow Maggie, um, I would love to post like some links and resources maybe like I, I, it's probably too much to like list them all here but um you know all of this like research and stuff that i've done i'm not just like making i'm not just making this up or like pulling, Wait, it, out of, <laughs> pulling it from nowhere um <laughs> so i'd love to i'd love to share yeah some some resources and notes um and also just you know for for a source of of hope and inspiration and um also amazing fashion sense. I, I love following Alok Fayed Manan on Instagram. Um, they're a non-binary poet and performer. And I just think that every single thing they say is like incredible and beautiful and amazing. Um, and they also have incredible, incredible fashion sense that I think really encapsulates like just what, what the world could be, right? If we just embraced this idea of, of gender clothing. Um, yeah. So yeah, definitely check them out. And I can, I can also provide you with some links about some of more of that research in case people want to read all about size I, charts. I, <laughs> size oh, charts they will. The they will. Revolution. Trust me. <laughs> I think they founded the hashtag D gender fashion, which is kind of oh, a cool thing yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah I, I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, gosh, I like want to talk to them because like the, you know, I wonder if they've had to go to these men's shows and be like, what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Maybe you can get them to be a guest on the podcast. I know. I know. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, this was so great. Thank you so much. Thank you to Ruby and Maggie for sharing their expertise, their stories, all their time with all of us. I'm so grateful for everything they shared with us today, and I'll be including all of their recommendations in the show notes, so go check them out. I have so many other thoughts on this I could talk on for hours, but I'm going to save them for Instagram or future episodes, because by now, you're probably tired of listening to this episode. As I mentioned at the top, I'll be taking a few weeks off because Dustin and I are going to Japan at the end of this week. No big deal, just in like four days. I really need to get my life together before we go. And 
And just a week later, after we get back, I actually have to go to a candy trade show for work, which does sound kind of fun. So I'm going to be using that time to brainstorm new episodes, do guest outreach, and all of the other behind-the-scenes clothes horse work. If you're missing clothes horse during that hiatus, I highly recommend, because I am super biased here, that you check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. We just finished a four-part series on the history of secondhand as a retail, social, and style trend. We covered, oh, I don't know, like 100 years during those four episodes. No big deal. So go check that out. And of course, I'll still be on Instagram the whole time I'm gone, sharing my trip, my thoughts, and what I'm reading on all those train rides. So thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And most importantly, tell a friend. And if you'd like to support my work financially, you can learn more at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. Thanks, everyone. See you in a few weeks. Bye. Bye.